What's going on guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we're doing an anonymous Q&A and I've done some of these anonymous Q&As on Instagram before. I've never done one on the podcast. I thought it would be super fun. When you use that NGL app thing and you let people ask questions anonymously, two things happen. One is you get to ask a longer question. It just gives you a longer text box than when you're doing it through the Instagram app itself, which lets people add a little bit more context, um, which is really great, especially in a podcast format where I really, I really wanna add a little bit more context with my answer as well. And typically I'm like, when I'm doing Q and A's, I'm like, I have some other pieces of context I would like. And so hopefully, you know, these anonymous Q and A's let you add a little bit more context, which is really great. The second is, although I wish and I would hope that people feel comfortable asking me a question, knowing I won't judge them um, and that they could ask me anything, I think that that's a bit idealistic and, and some people feel like, okay, I wouldn't ask this exactly how I would ask this unless it were anonymous. And so this gives people an opportunity who maybe don't ask questions when it's not anonymous or just feel more comfortable in this context, which I totally respect and that makes some sense to me for sure. The interesting part that I'm uh, laughing about is that I have not looked at any of the questions and I've done some of these NGLs, some of these uh, anonymous Q&As before and they, sometimes there's some interesting stuff in there. And so I'm not, I did, I cracked myself up because I looked at the first question. I was just standing with Jenna in the kitchen. And I looked at one question. I was like, let me just click on one random question. And I just laughed because it was like, not dumb questions. I didn't, I'm not coming at it from the angle. Just like, clearly these are like some it opens the door for a wider array of questions, which I'm which I'm stoked about. I think it'll be a ton of fun. Um, and I will try my best to answer all of them if I think it's something that just isn't done in a respectful way or something like that. I may make a judgment call and skip something, but for the fun of the podcast, I'm going to try and answer all of them. So we're going to kick it off from the top. It says, did you... We're going to start with the first question. I don't know names. I don't know anything I'm just going to read them off verbatim. It says, did you watch Game of Thrones? That's the whole question. I did. Uh, I loved 99% of Game of Thrones. I think the ending of Game of Thrones was traumatic. Um, so traumatic, in fact, that it, that it caused me to go and buy the books. And I was like, oh, I need to I need to be the get on the book reading end of this right now um, and figure out how this is really supposed to end, which ironically, it still has not done. Um, and so... Yeah, was uh, I loved Game of Thrones. Thought it was awesome. I've rewatched it a few times. Really great, but the ending just just was disheartening. Next question: Is Michael Jackson still alive? No comment. See, this is what we're talking about here. Next question: Have you done drugs? Have I done drugs? Well, I don't really know what that necessarily means. Drugs can mean a wide array of things. Alcohol's a drug. Uh, aspirin's a drug. Um, cocaine's a drug. Um, weed is a drug. Some drugs are legal. Some drugs are not. Um, I have absolutely, I will just not, I know what this person's, they're not asking if I've done aspirin. I'm not being an idiot. The answer is yes, I've done some drugs in my life. Um, more than zero, some that are not a good idea. Um, and very thankful that I never had any really, really bad experiences. And certainly not at this time in my life is it something that I, I mess with, let's say. Next. Do you like some clients better than others, LOL? Yes, of course. You know, to, there's like, and, and I'm cracking up because Jenna was like, um, just we were laughing about this con, this this style of doing a Q&A, but like, I'm just gonna be 100% honest. That's like, that's just my MO here. I'm gonna try and be as honest. I'm gonna try and add as many caveats and descriptors to make sure that, you know, I'm being as, um, yeah, that I'm adding enough context. Anyway, do I like some clients better than others? Absolutely. Um, I think that 
that's just goes without saying. When you have a group of people that you work with, there are going to be some people you jive with a little bit better. You get along with a little bit better. Um, but that doesn't, or at least I try my best. I'm human. I try my best to not change the way I act, the way I coach, the amount of effort I put into it. Um, and I think that there's a difference between your person personality and your client personality. Like sometimes there's, you know, a client that I really jive with, but they don't answer their check-in as thoroughly and, and we don't have as much of connection there, but we have connection elsewhere. And so I think that do I like some clients better than others actually has a wide range of possible definitions from just, hey, we would get along in real life to like, hey, we're getting along in our client coach relationship and everywhere in between. So the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, frankly, I really enjoy all of my one-on-one clients. Yes, every now and again, if you're a coach listening to this, you know. Every now and again, you get someone who's on the more difficult side of things for a plethora of different reasons. Could just be personality traits. Could be that they're not ready. Could be that you're not the right person for them. Could be a ton of different things. So that absolutely does happen to me. Let's be real. It's not like I'm taking on clients and every single time it's it's the most perfect match ever. And so that does happen. But right now, I just, I've been blessed for the last year or two to not be able to like hand pick when i when i talk about hand picking clients i'm not i'm not like the i need 10 highly motivated people who are going to do everything i say without question that's not what i'm looking for i'm i'm when i'm hand picking people i'm i'm hand picking people that i i want to be helping so it's a person with a problem that i enjoy solving whether that's a relationship with food you know pushing their fitness and and putting some structure around it being more time efficient um, losing fat, working on just biomarkers, healthy habit formation, all of that stuff. And so I've had the privilege of being able to pick people that I want to work with. That doesn't always work out personality-wise, but it does allow me to make sure I'm working with people who have, I was going to say have problems, it's a weird way of saying it, but that have problems that I want to help them with. Um, in, in, in essence, an example of the opposite would be I don't hire bodybuilders. I don't that's not a problem I enjoy solving. The problem being I want to, you know, um, place as well as possible at my next event. That's just not a problem I enjoy solving. So I've been handpicking people who are in scenarios that I think I would enjoy helping them with, let's say. And, and that really does kind of lead to a more enjoyable experience, hopefully, hopefully on both ends. All right. Next, I know what you did. Well, that's not a question and I don't know what I did, so you shoot me a message. Next question, can I achieve, look at this, something about fitness, here we go. Um, can I achieve fat loss if I eat at the low end of my maintenance and increase NEAT via more steps? Like 12K up from 10K and doing your lifting program, of course, winky face. Um, so we just need to like take a peek at some of these words. Can you achieve weight loss if you eat at the low end of your maintenance? No, Um because by definition, the words that we're using is you're at maintenance. Now, if you, the next part is, and increase NEAT via more steps, like adding 2,000 steps. So what you're saying is, would eating at a number that I think is the lower end of my maintenance and then adding steps, would that put me in a deficit? And the answer is maybe, yeah. In theory, it would. Would it yield a lot of fat loss? Probably not, because we're talking about being in a, very small deficit that you've created only by increasing 2,000 steps per day, which is not nothing, but if that's the sole uh, strategy or tool with which you're trying to create a deficit, it's not a big deficit. Um, So can I achieve fat loss if I eat at what I, I'm gonna add some words here just to kind of make it more technically correct. It's like, can I achieve fat loss if I eat at what I know to be my current, at this body weight and activity level, current low end of maintenance, 
and then also increase my activity a little bit? The answer is yes. Technically, that will probably, now technically that will probably put you in a deficit. It probably won't put you in a big deficit um, because just trying to do that through an increase in activity is really, really hard. Uh, and adding 2,000 steps, it's not negligible. Maybe it's like 100 extra calories per day, but that would be the entire deficit that you've created because you just said you'd be eating at maintenance calories. Um, and so I think you can achieve some fat loss if we're being technical, um, but I don't think it will be very much. If you were like, hey, I, I have an appreciable amount of body fat I want to lose, this this wouldn't be the strategy I'd go with. Um, last thing on this would be maybe you could just try this and see what happens. I think uh, a theme of some posts I've been putting on Instagram is like deal with your own situation, right? And so if you do this, like why not just do it? I know you're asking me just, I'm not, I'm not coming at you for asking me. I'm glad you asked. But I would just do it and see what happens. It's like, who cares what I say is gonna happen? If you're like, no, I did this and I lost fat, then that's amazing. Or I did this and I didn't lose fat. Then that's also, you know, factual information for, you know, from which you can make, you know, further more informed decisions. And so I think you won't lose much fat. That's my guess. It sounds like a very small deficit, but I think there's something here. If you're like, hey, I just want to try this and see how it goes. Yeah, more power to you. Next question, I have a home gym, so trying to buy things slowly. If I'm trying to grow that booty shelf, do you think a hyperextension machine is worth it? I already do RDLs, CAS, glute bridge, squats. So are hyperextensions targeting anything that those are missing? That last part, technically, yes. I mean, exercises are different, and so hyperextension does something different than hip, uh, than, than glute bridges and a combination of glute bridges and squats and RDLs. It does something different, technically. Personally, I think that as far as glute growth, there's a ton of overlap between the glute bridge and the uh, 45 degree hyperextension. And so if you're already doing glute bridges from a from straight up stimulus and muscle growth perspective, I don't think you're missing out on much. I don't think you need the hyperextension machine. From a monotony perspective and from an enjoyment perspective, I think a hyperextension machine is amazing. I have one in my gym. I have it in my gym particularly because I don't like doing glute bridges myself. I love a hyperextension machine. But again, that's a more of a personal preference-based answer, not a, hey, am I missing anything from a gains perspective? Um, and so, yes, I think upper glute max, you will get that with glute bridges, just challenging the short position in hip extension, you will get that. So you're not missing out on a ton of gains, but from a monotony perspective, if you have more than one exercise that overlaps enough that you can view it as a like-for-like swap, um, I think that that's really great for for long-term enjoyment, but if you're like, no, this is not, I'm not talking about enjoyment, I'm just talking about gains, and you can keep hammering glute bridges, um, I think you're good to go. I don't think you're missing out on much. I do think, again, just broadening the tools in your arsenal to hit certain things can be really great from an enjoyment perspective. But again, don't think you're missing much. I think if you're like glute shelf is what we're talking about here, then sure. Upper glute max for sure, but also glute mead. And so working in, you know, single leg movements. And if you have a cable machine, some like 30 degree kickback can be really great. Um, but yes, I don't think you're missing out on much. Next question. Have you ever considered adding a private Facebook group so people in your groups can interact with each other more easily? As someone in homebodies, I do miss sharing things like recipes and food finds with other ladies in the gym. I have absolutely considered it. I personally loathe Instagram. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Facebook. I loathe using Facebook. Um, it's, in my opinion, the worst place. I mean, it's just, I know what you mean. I like what you're saying. And I, I have thought about this quite a bit. Um, and I would kind of like there to be something like that in Train Heroic, where they expand the community group chat aspect. Um, 
But I think the group chat can be that. Now, I know I've kind of uh, vocalized that I'd like most of the communication to be about the training, but maybe that's something I can do where I can open up and encourage people to communicate about other things in the app. Um, I, one, if you don't have Facebook, then you couldn't contribute and everyone has the app if you're in the group. Um, but two, I personally don't want to be on it in another place. I hate Facebook. I know that that's not a great business move for me. Like people are on Facebook that could be joining the group. Just Facebook gives me agita, man. I just like too many like aunts and uncles with crazy political views. It just, and that is a proxy for everything I'm not a big fan of on, on social media here. So I'm with you and I hear you and I will see if there's a different way we can do this because I, I see what you're saying. There's, listen, there's 800 people in, in those two groups and I'm, I, I, I could not be more proud of that. And giving you guys a way to interact with each other in a way that's separate from the group that you can share recipes and, you know, just like other things that don't necessarily have directly to do with the group, that would be really nice. So I hear you. And uh, I'm gonna see if other, I know some of the other my other colleagues are on Facebook doing it on Facebook. I think there are pros and cons of doing that. Um, outside of the app. I think the app has some benefits. But yeah, I appreciate that. It's something I will definitely give some thought to. Seriously, I am I want this group to be amazing. And if that's something that can make it more worth it, where people stay longer, where people enjoy themselves more, then that is definitely something I'm interested in. Cool, next question. What is the average rate of fat loss for someone that's in a 16-week cut? I'll start by being annoying and pedantic, and then I will be helpful, I promise. So, I don't know what the average weight loss is. I don't think that there's metrics on that of like, oh, what's what do the average of what people do? Um, and I don't think that a 16-week, I don't think identifying a certain length of a cut makes any difference at all. Um, the length of which you should cut is just an abstract thing that people have made up. Uh, and so whether it's a 16-week cut or an 8-week cut or a 4-week cut or a 25-week cut or a 52-week cut, like, there's no amount of time that is inherently good or bad or inherently dictates some of the other variables. Um, so annoying pedanticism aside, um, I think a reasonable, reasonable meaning, what does reasonable mean? Reasonable rate of fat loss means you probably won't be mega uncomfortable, most people. Um, not better because of some metabolic reason, not better because of some muscle retention reason. When I say a reasonable rate of fat loss, what I mean is that most people won't be mega fucking uncomfortable losing at this rate. And not being mega fucking uncomfortable is a really important thing. If you want to take what I'm about to say and go a little bit slower and be a little bit less uncomfortable or go a little faster and be a little bit more uncomfortable, those can all work. And so I would say something like, 0.5% body weight per week, give or take a little bit. I'd say people who say 1% of body weight per week, that's really fast. That is incredibly fast fat loss. So 0.5%, give or take a little bit. If you're 150 pounds, 0.5 would be three quarters of a pound per week. That represents a level of discomfort that I suspect to be reasonably sustainable for most people. There's a lot of caveats there. You don't need to go that fast. You don't need to go that slow. You don't need to go any specific rate. There's no specific rate of fat loss that is inherently bad. There's no, you know, rate of fat loss that's inherently good. Um, People get really mixed up about that. There's no like, you know, you could could eat less and go faster and technically there's nothing wrong with that. You're not gonna mess up your metabolism. You're not gonna shrivel up into a muscle-less raisin. Um, You might not be able to sustain it. Maybe has some negative impacts in terms of relationship with food, but metabolically, physiologically, no real downside. So, Something like 0.5% body weight per week is like represents a 
level of discomfort that's probably sustainable and a decent jumping off point. Cool. Next question. What are you excited for with your group programming? Like what goal do you want to reach next slash favorite part of this mezzo? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the group's in a really good spot, I think, where we've kind of, I've just continued to hone what I believe to be, again, on average, everyone's different, um, a time commitment and an ethos and a general philosophy that is really efficient. What I mean is that we're training four days a week, 45 to 75 minutes um, with high intensity, lower volume. We meet, We train on average closer to failure than the average group. And we train on average with slightly lower sets. And we do that because that trade-off allows us to spend less time in the gym and get equivalent, potentially better gains depending on some other contexts. So I really do like where the group is right now. Um, some things that I've thought about are like what the other person said. How can we in- enhance the community feel? Number one, um, I've thought about adding additional groups, a three-day-per-week group, a hybrid training group where we're doing running and lifting. Um, those are things that I have in my mind for the future. Right now, I think it's very easy for you to modify my group training from four days a week down to three days a week. I think it is definitely doable. There's a ton of people doing that, but I think having a separate three-day-per-week group might be something I play with. Um, And doing a hybrid training group is something I would play with. Um, And then I think, like you said, the community feel where I can get both groups in the same group chat might be really nice. And I'm, will consider what that's like with, you know, over time. What I could do technically is make one group and that one group has two programs. And if you join my one group, you see the gym program and the home program. That has some pros and cons, Um, The pros are that that would allow everyone to be in the same group chat, which is kind of nice. You know, instead of having 500 people in one, 300 person in the other, you guys can all be together because there's a lot of overlap in the group. The downside, I think, is a lot of comparison. And so people in the home group looking at what people in the gym group are doing, people in the gym group looking at what people in the home group are doing, feeling like, oh, I'm missing out. I'm not in the gym. And it's nice when you only have your shit to focus on and you're not thinking about, oh, what's what's the opportunity cost of what I'm not doing? You know, what's the other group doing? You know, I'm and I'm mostly worried about my homebodies looking at the gym program and thinking like they're missing out on something because the gym program uses machines and stuff. Um, and I just really don't want that. The home program is badass. Honestly, the home program is hard as shit. It's, it's incredibly difficult. Um, it's, it is just not something I would ever want people to kind of have access to both and then look and be like, well, I should be doing that. It's like, that's not the case. You're doing plenty. Um, but it is something that I'm thinking about. What's my favorite part of this mezzo? Um, what is my favorite part of this mezzo? Um, I think, I think the introduction or the use of myo reps is one of the, my favorite things that we do. I think that that's a super time efficient intensity intensity technique that makes training a little bit more fun because it takes less time. Um, I like that we're doing sissy squats in the home group. I think that it's an incredibly challenging lift. It's incredibly challenging, but we have a ton of regressions. I also love that there's always an involvement to the form videos, even for old exercises. There's a new like 15 minute RDL video. Um, and I think that over time, it's it's just so nice because I get so much feedback from people just by people sending form videos. And I see what people are kind of messing up, let's say for lack of a less annoying phrasing. And then I know that if I see that same mistake like 50 times, that, that that's, a, that's a failure on my part from a how have I been explaining this incorrectly. And so that's been really great because I'll go back and I'll take that and I'll redo the form video to make sure I'm 
I'm addressing that from the get-go. Um, hopefully that was a sufficient answer. We got many more of these. Is there such a thing as too many steps? Can it impede recovery from resistance training? Is there such a thing as too many steps? Can it impede recovery from resistance training? Um, I'll start with a binary answer. We'll see if we can add some context. I think if you're walking, then it's almost impossible to walk so much that you get such a stress response that it impedes recovery from training. Like if you're like, hey, I'm walking 20,000 steps a day, but I'm just walking, you're probably not gonna see any downside in terms of recovery from training. And I think within any realistic amount of steps, it's almost like, hey, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, even if I'm just walking, yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're gonna see recovery, um, you're gonna see uh, an impeding of recovery from resistance training, for sure. But in the 10 to, in, in under 20K steps per day, if you're just walking, I don't think you're gonna see notable impeding of recovery when it comes to resistance training. If you're getting those steps via higher intensity cardio, so if you get 10,000 steps, but it all came from, from really fast running, yeah, then maybe, totally. Um, we have to look at higher intensity cardio as more likely to overlap with our resistance training. Now, I don't wanna scare people away from doing the occasional jog or the occasional run or the occasional hit session. Don't think the occasional anything is anything to worry about. But if you're getting a lot of steps and you're getting them all via very high intensity exercise, that's when I might say, okay, you're getting 20K steps per day or 15K steps or 12K and you're getting them all through hard running or hard elliptical or hard biking, that's when I might start to put an eye on it. Like It's like we have two things, or the quantity that you're doing and the intensity that you're doing. And both of them make a difference here. The more quantity you're doing, the more stress. The more intensity you're doing, the more stress. And so if you're doing a lot of quantity, but the stress in terms of intensity is really low, I'm not too worried about it. If you're doing a low quant uh, quantity of work, but the intensity is kind of high, I'm also probably not too worried about it. If you're doing a mix of both or a lot of both, then I'll start to kind of, and I would say, hey, that's something to look at. It, there, there is no way that I can categorically say you're doing too many steps. You know that you're not recovering from resistance training. Listen very carefully. You know that you're not recovering from resistance training if you are consistently unable to repeat or beat past performance. And so if you catch yourself regressing on your lifts from week to week, you know, three weeks in a row, you're showing up super sore, super tired, and you can't even match what you did the last week. I'm not talking about a one-off. I'm not talking about, oh, I showed up this week and I didn't match what I did last week. So I must be overtraining. No, no, no. That's just, that's one time. We're not worried about one time. We're talking about a consistent, a, a consistently underperforming in your training, consistently regressing from prior efforts. That would be a time to step back and be like, hey, three weeks in a row, I have regressed. Again, it's not black and white. I can't say that that is definitively overtraining, but shit, man, that would be a big flag in the sky of like, let's take a look, a closer look at what's going on. Cool. Quick sip of coffee, and then we will keep going. Also, I have this cold brew concentrate, and it's a mind fuck because I'm just not sure how much caffeine is in it, and I feel like I should just stop because I know, I listen, I didn't just fill the whole cup with concentrate. I went 50-50 here like a human being, but... um. I'm notably wired whenever I'm having this cold brew concentrate, so something is up here. Cool. Next question. Can I maintain my biceps, triceps through indirect lifts like back and chest movements, or should I keep direct arm work? It's an amazing question. Go check out my friend Brian Borstein. He did a study on himself where his right arm, I'll mix up which arm, but no big deal, one arm trained with direct bicep and tricep work on top of all of his chest and back work. The other arm did all of the chest and back work, but did no bicep and tricep work. 
Um, and I'll tell you, he did that for six months. Six months. He trained his biceps and triceps on his right side alongside all of his other training. And on the left side, did his other training, but no bicep and tricep training. And six months later, there was no difference in arm size. Like, it's not like the right side grew. It's not like the left side shrank. Nothing changed. Um, I actually think it was even worse than that. He got a DEXA scan and he did it very meticulously. So we, And he did it over a long period of time. Um, I actually think the, the right side that he was training shrunk. And so we can talk about why that might be. And I don't want to say that arm training is not relevant, but you phrase this. Can I maintain biceps and triceps through indirect lifts like back and chest movements? I would say that the bigger your biceps and triceps are, the bigger and stronger and more muscular you are, the less you'll be able to do that. But if you're a moderate-sized individual, myself, whatever, chances are you can. I would lean much closer on, yes, you can do this. If you just do a lot of pulling and pressing, I bet you that's enough, quote, indirect volume for your biceps and triceps that they'll remain as muscular as they are. Um, For some people, that's enough to grow biceps and triceps. For many people, that's enough to grow biceps and triceps. I'd say for most people, that's enough to, like your biceps and triceps will grow as a newbie with just regular compound heavy pressing and pulling. Um, The more advanced you are, the more everything needs a little bit more of a direct stimulus. Just very generally speaking, the more advanced, the more muscular you are, the less you can rely on indirect volume. The less advanced, if you wanna grow. I think of an advanced trainee can maintain their muscle through indirect volume in this context. 100% 100% of their of their muscle, I don't know. I'd say most of their muscle. Um, yeah, the, at the end of the day, I don't know. The newer you are to training, the more likely you can keep growing like this. The, the more advanced you are, the more likely that you're just gonna maintain. But I would say that you, you can. I would say that you can. Um, and if I'm wrong, I bet I'm not wrong by that much. I bet that you can maintain most of it would be my current stance. Next question, the worst pickup line you've ever heard? Probably the stupid Tennessee one, you're the only 10 I see, I don't know, some dumb shit. I've never used a pickup line my entire life, um, and I kind of regret it. I kind of wish that I had like, I love my wife, I'm happily married. I'm just saying as like a a younger person in the pursuit of uh, that, um, I would have liked to take more stupid chances like this. Like I just, not, no regrets. I'm not losing sleep over it, but I just look back and be like, hey dude, you, you could have easily just taken more shots and and maybe even with some stupid pickup lines, you never know, something might've clicked. So yeah, not, I'm not a big pickup line person. During the live yesterday, you said you'd question sleep and nutrition as if a client was sore often. Why is this? How do those things contribute to soreness? Yeah, they just, they just contribute to recovery. And so if you eat super low protein, eat super low calorie and you don't sleep really well, yeah, chances are you're not recovering really well. Um, and the irony is that it's not a perfect correlate. Sometimes you get more sore when you sleep really well because that soreness is actually a sign that the stimulus worked. Um, Dr. Mike talks about this a little bit where it's like, hey, when you get really good night's sleep, sometimes you get a little bit more sore. And so it's just something I would look into. If a client is getting really, 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 really sore, I'd be like, all right, are they like in a deficit here? Are they like mega low on protein, which isn't directly correlated to soreness? Are they low on electrolytes? Are they low on fluids? Um, are they sleeping like shit, you know? And and so there, it's not a black and white thing. It's like, oh, you're you're too sore? Okay, then, then these are definitely the reasons why. But it would just open up the book of like, okay, like is it the training stimulus that's causing, like when we talk about, um, like overtraining or soreness, it's a two-part equation. It's the training stimulus plus the recovery variables. 
And so I would just open the door of looking at the recovery variables too. Like if I write somebody a program and I know that that program on average is pretty mild, like mild volume, mild intensity, not a ton of lengthened work. And they're like, dude, I'm sore as shit. I will look at multiple things. But one thing I'll look at is like, I'll see the training and I'm like, well, this training by itself, it's not crazy. It might be too much for them right now, totally true, but it's not like I gave them five, you know, 30 sets of chest this week where that soreness makes a ton of sense just because the training stimulus, even in a perfect condition, is a ton. I might say, okay, the training stimulus is adequate. Let me let me see if there's something on the recovery side of things. Um, and so it's more an understanding of soreness being a net of training stimulus and recovery. And so we just want to look at both sides of that equation. So I will look at the training stimulus to see if we can modify, see if we need to modify, but I'd also look at the recovery variables. It's not super clear cut, but it's just acknowledging that maybe we want to look at the balance of those two things. Next question, been in a deficit, being in a deficit is so frustrating. I feel weak sauce in the gym. Lifting feels like a waste of the time because I feel too heavy or too weak to lift heavy. How do you grow and progress when it feels like you need to take a nap between every fucking set? So I'll start by speaking very generally here. When you're in a deficit, your goal, I'll be very clear, I'm gonna move closer to the camera here. Your goal is fat loss. Your goal is fat loss and muscle maintenance. You're not, you do, you're in a deficit for a relatively short period of time compared to the rest of your life. Focus on fat loss. Like you're going, excuse me, you're going to the gym. You're still, you still have the intent to push hard. You're still pushing hard. You're still trying to progress. But lower your expectations, dude. Go to the gym, get a stimulus, send a signal to your body to maintain muscle while you're in a deficit so you lose body fat, not muscle, and just let go of like, oh, I need to PR right now or, oh, I have to have my best lifts in the world. You know, if you're feeling exhausted in your training, maybe the deficit is too big, maybe your sleep sucks, maybe your training volume's too high. I think you can reduce training volume a little bit in a deficit because when you do that, what ends up happening, when I say reduce training volume, I mean, maybe you can do a little bit less sets. And what happens almost all the time is that people feel better and they train harder. And I'd rather you do two hard sets than three mediocre sets where you're fucking napping in between every set because you're so exhausted. And so, man, I just think people like, when you're in a deficit, it's not that you're like, hey, training feels like a waste. It's like, it feels that way because you're still hyper-focused on being your best. You're not your best. Just do your best with the fuel that you have right now. Maintain muscle for the you know, six, eight, 10, 12, 20 weeks that you're in a deficit. Don't worry about PRing. Yes, train hard. Yes, try and progress, but lower your expectations, man. You know, you're here to lose fat right now. Your main goal is fat loss. Your main goal is not muscle growth. Like, I just see that often. I'm like, hey, go to the gym, train really hard. Let's maybe reduce training volume a little bit. Maybe change up our exercise selection to stuff that's less systemically fatiguing for you right now. Um, And let's send a signal to our body to main muscle, make muscle, or to maintain muscle, and let's focus on the fat loss side of things right now. Like, I like the amount of muscle that you'll grow in an optimal scenario in a deficit is like the amount of muscle you'll grow in like two weeks at maintenance or a surplus. Like, it's just, it's it, you're fretting about something that just isn't the point right now. It's, it's not the point for you to grow maximum muscle. It's not the point for you to have your best lifts in the world. Yeah, you wanna go to the gym and you wanna check the box and you wanna work hard and you wanna send a stimulus to maintain muscle for sure. But lower your expectations, dude. You're, you're focusing on fat loss right now. Focus on fat loss. Go to the gym. Do enough hard training to maintain muscle. And then when you're out of your deficit, you have more food, maybe a surplus, great. That's a way better time to be focused on whether or not you're progressing, making your best gains, feeling amazing in the gym. So funny is the question that I clicked is the last question that I'll do. 
And I thought I was really in for some of those types of questions, but we still have five more. And so we'll see how this goes here. Would you please consider creating an option for app members to work with you one-on-one regarding nutrition, especially accountability? Um, yeah, it's called one-on-one coaching and I offer it. It's just something that's separate from the group. Um, so I have this option as part of what I offer as a coach. It's much more intimate. It's much more high touch. Um, it's much more expensive. It's just a higher cost, higher touch, more intimate experience. And I do offer it. And so, yeah, that 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 is a thing. Um, I, I guess I have a little stick up my ass about something. Not that you asked this question, but like, if you want to work on your nutrition, do it. In my opinion, most people, not everyone, not all contexts, I'm speaking generally here, most people in most circumstances get with a coach where you actually have an intimate relationship with them, where you're friends, where, where, where you see each other, where you Zoom with each other, where you communicate frequently. Like this like, hey, like give me a one-time macro account. You're like, oh, I'd love for the app members to work with you one-on-one, especially on accountability. It's like, if you're going to work one-on-one with somebody, it should be something high touch. In my opinion, it should be something where you communicate with them frequently. You're Zooming with them. You're talking with them. You're working on relationship with food and fitness. You're not you're not just getting a one-time macro count. Like, like I know there are group nutrition or, or nu- group nutrition groups. They're like nutrition-based groups or fat loss group coaching. Um, and I don't think it's useless. I don't. I think, listen, man, I, I've made this group with the sole goal of, of creating a very cost-friendly option. Like I acknowledge that not everyone has hundreds of dollars to spend on that. But I think that I would at least at least start to look at it as an investment that is worth, you know, it's like, it's like, um, you know, if you're not a computer person, the difference between a $2,000 laptop and a $500 laptop is nothing. You're like, hey, I just need this computer to surf the web, use Microsoft Word, and text with people or whatever, send emails. It's like, okay, you don't need a $2,000 computer. And I think a lot of people look at coaching that way. They're like, oh, I just need a macro account and a meal plan and, and, and some accountability. It's like, I actually think more people should be getting the, not the $2,000, let's not get hung up on the actual numbers, but I want you to start to look at this as something that's actually worth investing in something a little bit better. It's worth investing in something a little bit higher touch, a little bit more intimate, a little bit where you actually speak with each other, not just like an email once a week. Um, and so, yeah, group nutrition coaching to me, it's it's not a full-blown oxymoron. I just don't I just think it's um it's stopping people from getting what they really need, which is a more intimate person to work with. Not everyone. I think there are some people that would do well with that for sure. Um it's just in my experience, I've seen way more personal growth and way more people making actual long-term changes by by having that more intimate experience. Okay. Three more, four more. Last sip of coffee. I said I was going to cut myself off. Okay. How do you coach someone who doesn't feel deserving of results and self-sabotages? I I will be blunt with you that I think my immediate knee-jerk reaction is that this person needs therapy. And And I'm not like, that is not me saying, oh, there's something wrong with you. So you're fucked up mentally or something. No, no. I think everyone should be in therapy. And I think that, this is more of a therapy type of question. And, and, and I will say that I've tried in my coaching not to be a therapist, not to replace therapy for, for absolutely not. 
Um, there's not, there's a line I will not cross, but this is inner work. This is self work. This is, you know, requires a lot of digging deep. This requires a lot of introspection. And I think that if you're willing to at least breach that with your client, I think that's a good idea. If you know how to do that, if you have a relationship with this person, but I do think that there's a point where therapy alongside nutrition coaching is a match made in heaven. I mean, it is the killer combo. Um, So how do I coach someone who doesn't feel deserving and results of self-sabotage? You know, I use motivational interviewing. If you don't know what that is, go buy the book on Amazon, motivational interviewing, um, to try and get people to talk about it, to try and get people to be a bit introspective, to ask themselves why, to be a little bit more self-aware, to try and come to these conclusions on their own. But yeah, man, I'm not I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. There's certainly things that are out of my scope. And so at some point I think, hey, like, this is the problem. It's not the macros. It's not the meal plan. It's not the fiber. It's not the protein. It's not the training. It's not the steps. It's the stuff going on between your ears. And we could work on it. And I'd like to. But there's certainly a point where it's like, damn, like, um, I, I really think that the best thing you could do for your mental and physical health is see a professional. Um, and so it's a tough, it's a tough thing because as a coach, I don't want to be like, oh, you need therapy. I can't help you at all. It's like, I'll poke around. I have been in therapy for a long time. God, that doesn't make me a therapist, nor am I qualified to do that, but I will take some of what I've experienced and try and bring that into the conversation a little bit, but there's certainly a line I won't cross, and at some point, it's absolutely time you know, to say that. I know that that's tough for business because sometimes you're like, no, I don't want to lose this client. They're paying me. It's like, yeah, but probably what's best for them is to actually work on that inner work with somebody who's qualified to help them with that, for sure. <laughs> Can you share your location with me? False, cannot do that. I don't need help with macros. I understand that side of things pretty well, but would love to hire you as an accountability partner. Is that an option? Um, yes, it's an option. I'm, when, I, when I say what I'm about to say, like, don't take it the wrong way, but it costs the same. I'm not like, oh yeah, you just, I'll just totally modify my coaching program and systems and, you know, um, for, for this. So I, I wouldn't do that, but, I have people that hire me that don't do macros. I have people that hire me that take a lot of initiative on that side of things themselves. But um, the idea of like, oh yeah, I'll just, just for me, like in order for me to help the most people, I need to make sure I'm not doing a million different things. Now I have different clients with different goals and we have different communication styles and all of that. But like, I don't want to offer 47 different coaching options. You know what I mean? So so I don't mean that as disrespect. I think I see where you're coming from and maybe that group option is something that would really work great for you. So funny, man. This next question is where I thought most of these questions were going to go. And it's, do you ever notice yourself being attracted to your clients? Um, and this is the one me and Jenna were cracking up about right before. Not because it's a bad question, just because I was like, oh, here we go, anonymous questions. Um, I'll be honest with you. There's, um, I think that there's, there needs to be a level of, first of all, I'm happily married. Love my wife, most beautiful human on the planet. But you're lying if you say that you don't find other things in life beautiful as well. I think my wife's the most beautiful thing that's ever walked the earth, period. It's like, turns me on more, attracted to her more than anyone ever in my entire life. But to say that, this other person is not beautiful if I think that they're beautiful. Like, like to, to, to have that feeling blunt me from ever thinking that anything else is beautiful, it's just not true. Like, and, and I, I, I'm, we're on that, like, we've gone through that of like, hey, this person is objectively beautiful. 
you could even say this person like I'll go down a little bit of a rabbit hole. I'll probably this is your last, this is my last question. If you're not interested in this answer, then you could just yeah, cool, move on, love you. Um, but I think I think I'm 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 Jenna and I are obsessed with the level of honesty here, and so I think if she thinks a dude is hot or something like that, like I don't want that to bother me. Like it would be weird if she didn't think any other person on planet Earth was attractive at all. That's just a lie. And so I'd rather her be like, hey, this person's attractive. This person's hot. I think this person's beautiful. But that's different than I want them or I want them instead of you or I want to be with them or I want to, you know, have sex with them or whatever. Like that's, that's just a very different thing. And so like there's an objective viewpoint of like, hey, this is a, this thing is beautiful, which looks different to everybody. Um, and being attracted to that person, being turned on with that person and and wanting that person. And so I'm not beating around the bush with this question, but I just think that there's a difference between like, oh, this is objectively something I find to be beautiful, let's say, and that having anything to do with my ability to prioritize my relationship with my wife and and feel like she's the most beautiful thing ever because she is. Um, But this like, when people like, when people get in like weird arguments with their spouse of like, you said Brad, like I told Jenna, I'm like, if you tell me Brad Pitt's not hot, you're lying. If you tell me Brad Pitt's not turning you on, you're lying. And I don't want you to lie. I want you to be like, Brad Pitt's hot. Brad Pitt turns me on. Back in my day, that would have been dope. Dot, dot, dot. But I love you. You're the most beautiful person to me inside and out. And I don't want anyone else. Like that's the kind of relationship I want to be in. So I don't know. I don't really ever have like those sorts of like feelings, but I just, wanted to kind of share that part of the conversation of like, there's just, God, you should be with somebody that allows for a level of objectivity and honesty and openness where being like, hey, this person's hot isn't sending your relationship into a spiral. Um, And so, no, I don't really ever get caught up in any of this, but I also think that on a level of like, you know, it's just not where my head's at with coaching. Um, I'm just not in that headspace at all. Um, but in the same breath, I think it's totally fine and healthy to admit that something is objectively beautiful without it needing to be a spiral that, you know, breeds some sort of negativity with, you know, a loved one or something like that. So, yeah, hopefully that was a an, a, a, a thorough enough, honest enough answer that doesn't get me in trouble. All right, guys, that's the end for today. I had a lot of fun with these. We'll definitely do these again, and I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.